Hello, my friends. This is Glenda Taylor. Welcome to the One and All Wisdom podcast. Today, I want to share with you on a different subject than than I've shared with you before, something that has been important to me, and that is the subject of writing. And you may say, well, I'm not a writer, but I dare say you write emails, or you write tweets, or you may write business reports, or you may write love letters. All of us are writers in one way or another. Long ago, back in the early 1960s, I worked as an editor of publications at a university, and I did a lot of writing there. I was a winner of a National Time Life Editorial Award, and after that I was asked to give a talk on writing to a national conference of university editors. I have kept a copy of the speech I gave that day to the assembled writers and editors gathered from around the country back then, and occasionally I pull that speech out and reread it for myself to remember my own youthful admonitions to other writers. So I thought I'd share with you in a sort of playful way today my admonitions about writing. Here's what I said back then, and I think it holds true still today. I am to talk about writing. I will therefore ask you to ignore H.L. Mencken's famous caustic statement that, quote, with precious few exceptions, all the books on writing style in English are by writers quite unable to write. <laughs> he disproved that himself, and he didn't know me, so I'm going ahead with it anyway. To read what someone has written is to gaze at the writer himself. To read what someone has written is to gaze at the writer himself. For example, listen to this brief essay by a 10-year-old assigned to write about a beast. And I quote the 10-year-old. It is the cow. The cow is a mammal. It has six sides, right, left, and upper and below. It has six sides, right, left, and upper and below. At the back, it has a tail on which hangs a brush. With this, it sends the flies away so that they will not fall into the milk. The head is for the purpose of growing horns and so that the mouth can be somewhere. The horns are to butt with and the mouth is to moo with. Under the cow hangs the milk. It is arranged for milking. When people milk, the milk comes, and there is never an end to the supply. How the cow does it, I have not yet realized, but it makes more and more milk. The cow has a fine sense of smell. One can smell it far away. (laughs) This is the reason for the fresh air in the country. The cow doesn't eat much, but what it eats, it eats twice, and so it gets enough. When it's hungry, it moves, and when it says nothing, it is because its inside is all full up with grass. End quote. So this essay tells us more about the writer than about the cow. <laughs> so it is with all writing. The structure of our sentences reflects the structure of our minds. Therefore, what I say about writing will not be concerned with how one uses a pencil or a computer now, but with how one thinks. Let me sum it all up at the first. Good writing, like good thinking, good writing, like good thinking, is logical, precise, imaginative, concise, appropriate, and fresh.
logical, precise, imaginative, concise, appropriate, and fresh. Let's take them one at a time. First, good writing is precise. There are millions of words, and everyone has its own personality and meaning. No two words are interchangeable. A native is not a savage. An apple is not a forbidden fruit. An airplane is not a flying machine. A bush is not a shrub. Yes, I actually said that long before George Bush's election. Every word has its own overtones and undertones, its own emotional and intellectual content. A native makes us feel one way. A savage makes us feel something very different. They are not interchangeable. We must choose our words very carefully for what we intend to convey. A good writer is a lover of words. He or she cares deeply about the identity and history and definition, the flexibility or rigidity of words. A good writer would no more use a word for a job that it was not created to do than a ditch digger would use a teaspoon to dig a ditch. Each word has its own meaning and function, which should not be violated. Because words can be rendered meaningless by a careless writer. What does it mean to say, for example, as a literary critic has said, that the outstanding feature of a certain work is its living quality? Who knows what that means? Stuart Chase recalled a senator who, a distinguished, powerful leader with skill in political management, told him that Americanism was to be the year's campaign issue. When asked what Americanism meant, he said he didn't know, but it was a damn good word with which to carry an election. <laughs> we all know that the word democracy means so many things to so many people that uh, sometimes I think it means nothing. Some theologians now are telling us that the word God has been used so loosely and irresponsibly that it has become meaningless. A good writer will never use a vague and meaningless word to conceal his or her own ignorance, nor will she use an imprecise word because he or she is too lazy to find the right one. In our writings, let us be precise, selecting words with care. Not only are words often used in futile attempts to make them mean what they cannot mean, but the order that they are shoved into is sometimes illogical or ludicrous. A newspaper reports that we have, quote, held out the olive branch, but nothing concrete has come out of it. And it's a battlefield, the book. Graham Greene wrote, quote, Kay Rimmer sat with her head in her hands and her eyes on the floor, end quote. Someone has wondered where her teeth were, on the mantelpiece, perhaps. So our, our writing, we hope, will be precise and logical, and fit together in a meaningful order. Second point. Good writing is imaginative and fresh. Fresh. Up to date. George Orwell once said back in his day that the prose of that time consisted less and less of words chosen for the sake of their meaning and more and more of phrases tacked together like a prefabricated henhouse. 
a prefabricated hen house was probably a very useful metaphor in his day. However, not everybody in our current contemporary society uh, even knows what a hen house is supposed to look like, let alone a prefabricated one. So let us be careful about cliches and bury forever dead metaphors. Why must we still write about people having axes to grind and grists for the mill? How often do we see an axe ground or a mill's grist anymore? And what precisely is, for example, a swan song that we hear about all the time? Can anyone except a sailor embark on a career? Dead metaphors. Let's stop mixing metaphors up, too. We can't iron out bottlenecks no matter how hot the iron. Our job as writers is to transform reality of one kind or another with words that we'll once read recreate reality in the mind of the reader. Our job is to convey mood and meaning, not to just construct lyrical phrases or to do exercises in staccato sentences. Our means may be metaphor, similes, personification, exaggeration, and countless kinds of image-making devices. But let us be clear about our purpose. Someone has said, language like the glass in a window exists to let in light. Our job is to provide the light, not fancy designs on the window. End quote. And I would say that it's better to suggest than to overstate. A picture of a child standing tattered and alone beside a burned Vietnamese village spoke the whole sordid story of war more than a thousand words by a politician or a newscaster. So let us paint vivid, concrete word pictures that suggest much to the reader, and the reader's mind and experience will supply the rest. To do this, a writer must be observant, open, to see and absorb sights and sounds and smells and textures and meanings. And then a writer must somehow translate these through his or her own vocabulary, through his or her own words and imagination, and the way those words are put together, must transfer that to the reader. This likely means choosing precise descriptive words. It is raining outside. Is it a squall, a drizzle, a cloudburst, a hard, wind-driven rain, a patter, a thunderstorm? There are as many ways to say it as there are raindrops and riders. To write a particular rain so that the reader sees and feels it cannot be done by just saying, it's raining sheets, End quote. Our imaginations, a writer's imagination, is fed by observation, but also by discipline. Since a good writer has stored away a head full of strong nouns and verbs, strong nouns and verbs, a good writer names every experience encountered, names it with its exact and appropriate strong noun. E.B. White says, quote, The adjective hasn't been built that can pull a weak and inaccurate noun out of a tight place. End quote. Strong nouns. Strong nouns mean concrete language, vivid images. Will Strunk commanded in a little book, which is my Bible, by the way, The Elements of Style. 
Will Strunk commanded that the writer prefer the specific to the general, the definite to the vague, the concrete to the abstract. He gives some examples. Here is the vague, general, and abstract statement. He showed satisfaction as he took possession of his well-earned reward. Here is the concrete, specific, and precise sense. He grinned as he pocketed the coin. <laughs> Here's another example from Strunk. Here is the vague, quote, In proportion as the manners, customs, and amusements of a nation are cruel and barbarous, the regulations of their penal code will be severe, end quote. Here is the vivid way to say the same thing. Quote, in proportion as men delight in battles, bullfights, and combats of gladiators, will they punish by hanging, burning, in the rack. End quote. Strong, straightforward, forceful. Sir Ernest Gowers, who often rapped the knuckles of the writers of governmental officialese, was happy with the writer of this governmental directive. If a worker's clothing is destroyed beyond all hope of repair by an accident on his job, his employer can apply to us for the coupons needed to replace it. This doesn't mean, of course, that anyone can get coupons if he just gets a tear in his trousers. End quote. If he just gets a tear in his trousers, not only conveys a clearer meaning than, say, if his garment suffers comparatively minor damage and is capable of effective reconditioning. A tear in the trousers creates a different atmosphere. The reader feels that the writer is a human and not a cog in the bureaucratic machine. Almost that he, he might be a good chap, as Gowers remarks. How many of us write in a style that causes readers to feel that we might be good chaps? How many of us university editors demand that our academic faculty write this way? That's a part of our editorial responsibility, to redirect those who love the say-nothing statement and the weak noun and the vague commentary. The simple, strong, precise verb is everywhere ignored in favor of lengthy verbal leeches that infest our writing and suck away its strength and vigor. Isn't contact better than make contact with? Isn't cause better than have the effect of? If it should be noted that, then note it and get on with it. Will Strunk again gives us some good examples of this. There is no doubt but could just be doubtless. In a hasty manner could simply be hastily. His story is a strange one could be his story is strange. Owing to the fact that could be because Adverbs can also drain the energy of strong verbs. If a crisis is always acute, if an emergency is always grave, what is left for those words crisis and emergency to do by themselves? And if it is urgent, get right to it. This is urgent is better than this is a matter of considerable urgency. Strunk says, quote, Strong words like urgent, danger, crisis, disaster, fatal, grave, paramount, and essential lose force if used too often. Reserve them for strong occasions and then let them stand on their own legs without adjectival or, or adverbial support. Strunk's little book on writing is priceless 
to all of us as writers. He recommends these active verbs. He says there are too many uns and nuns taking the place of active verbs. George Orwell recommended that writers memorize as a defense from themselves this sentence. The not-un-black dog was chasing a not-un-small rabbit across the not-un-green field. (laughs) The last attribute of a good writer that I want to focus on today is conveying appropriate mood and meaning. Being concise does not mean that brevity is important for itself, but that a writer must convey his meaning with as much or as little simplicity and economy as is required to convey the appropriate mood and meaning. I am reminded of a story I heard once when uh, my high school English teacher was asked by one of my fellow classmates how long an assigned theme should be. My teacher told him the story of a sculptor who was commissioned to do a work on Abraham Lincoln. The sculptor asked Lincoln how tall the statue should be. Lincoln thought for a moment, couldn't decide, and finally told the sculptor to make his feet touch the ground. What I'm saying is that a writer should use enough words or as few words as is required to make a subject's feet touch the ground. Again and again, Will Strunk admonishes us to avoid needless words. Avoid needless words. He says in a passage that I think should be framed and hung over the desk of every writer alive, Vigorous writing is concise. A sentence should contain no unnecessary words, a paragraph no unnecessary sentences, for the same reason that a drawing should should have no unnecessary lines and a machine no unnecessary parts. This requires not that the writer make all his sentences short or that he avoid any detail and treat all his subjects only in outline, but that every word tells. As any poet knows, matching word and rhythm to meaning and mood determines the length or brevity of a good sentence. A scene of harshness and violence may require short, choppy sentences. He cut and hacked his way clear, while a light or airy scene may require the evening air carried the frail sweetness of crepe mirth. Obviously, there are occasions and moods for the expansiveness of Thomas Wolfe and Walt Whitman, but there are also times for the short, simple, and human, as, for example, this little letter written by an Egyptian many centuries ago, quote, Apollonius to Zeno greeting, you did right to send the chickpeas to Memphis, farewell, end quote. <laughs> but let's not set definite rules as to length. As B.P. Bononsky says, quote, Let's not put on straitjackets when writing sentences. Let's be free to flail our arms when necessary. It's dull and deadly to read sentences which sound as if they've been written with a meat chopper. Let's have sentences which alternately growl, cry out, question, and purr. Let's have sentences which march straight down the path of reason, delivering arguments for facts. Let's have sentences which are stately and grand. Let's have sentences which crack the whip. Any grammar textbook will remind you that there are several types of sentences, loose and simple, compound and complex, periodic and parallel, balanced and emphatic. Let's use them all, end quote. 
So now what I've really been talking about all along in this speech is appropriateness. Do the words fit the size and dignity and style of the subject? We should not be breezy about serious matters or too serious about simple matters. We must be appropriate to the occasion. I plead with you, as with myself, to think logically, precisely, imaginatively, and concisely. The style is not the important thing, but rather the thought and image transmitted intact from writer to reader. I'm told that certain natives would not allow anyone to deface or destroy a photograph because it was felt that this would be destroying the person himself or herself. Words, as I said in the beginning, are a photograph, if you will, of the writer. Take the words you write so seriously that you feel if a wrong word is inappropriately used, something of yourself is destroyed. Thank you for the honor of this award and this opportunity to share with you a little bit about what I've learned about writing. And thank you for being with me on this podcast as day in and day out I come to you with different themes, different subjects, different ideas. You're always in my heart. See you soon again on the One and All Wisdom Podcast. Thank you.